Hey, Mark. Yes. So, have you ever actually been to a casino? No, but I have walked through the casino floor on a cruise ship when I was in seventh grade. Oh, my. Yeah, I think it was probably even worse, because all I remember is old women smoking cigarettes looking depressed at slot machines. Those places are so weird, because on a cruise ship, it's basically just slot machines. Right, they don't have any real casino things, but there's just like seven people there of slot machines with only seven people playing. Yeah, that's kind of depressing. It is. It is not a happy place. I went to a casino once when I was visiting some friends in Biloxi. Is it one of the riverboat casinos? No, it wasn't. Biloxi's on the Gulf, and it was basically totally destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. Just so you all know, there's going to be a cut there, but Will took about 30 seconds to remember the name of Hurricane Katrina. Look, there's a lot of hurricanes out there. Anyway, Biloxi was like totally destroyed, so they had to rebuild it, and the things they rebuilt first were the casinos. So we went to this big casino, and it was actually kind of cool. I put in a dollar and then was just doing penny slots for a while. Yeah. And I kind of got, I was like, oh, I totally see how you could get really into this, even though it's totally meaningless. Like, you hit a point where you're down to, like, since I'm playing out of a dollar, you're down to, like, 30 cents, and then you start to win pennies back. And I'm like, whoa, I'm doing great. But actually, I'm still down from the dollar that I started with. Yeah, casinos are ridiculously good at making money. Right. It plays on this nonsense psychology where you think that things are going to continue going in a certain direction. Yeah. But it's all sunk cost. Oh, for sure. I mean, the country of Monaco doesn't have income taxes because the government owns Monte Carlo, the casino there. Yeah. One of my friends, though, started playing his first ever real game of blackjack, besides just like playing around a table with doofuses. Yeah. He made $200 sitting at that table. That's crazy. Yeah. Card games at casinos make a bit more sense to me because there is some skill level involved. But I just would hate the idea of sitting there sinking money into a machine and not getting anything back. Yeah, if I want to do that, I'm at least going to take a chance of getting a stuffed animal out of the machine. Exactly. I would waste so much more money at a Dave and Buster's-esque place than I would at a casino. What if a casino just put a couple of those in place? What if a casino had a ticket booth? You could choose to get things in either chips or in tickets. I love this idea. Chuck E. Cheese and MGM had a baby. Oh, man, what would it be called? I mean, I don't think you can get better than the name Charles Entertainment Cheese. I love that that's his middle name. Chuck E. Cheese, for those of you who don't know, the E stands for entertainment. Yeah, this is canonical. It's Charles Entertainment Cheese. That new Chuck E. Cheese is so horrifying. I mean, all Chuck E. Cheese is horrifying. Yeah, it's true. But it's creepy in a different way where I appreciate the creepiness that is animatronics in general. Oh, for sure. But once you get into, like, CGI actual looking like a rat thing, then I was no longer on board. I don't want a literal rat delivering my pizza. No. Unless it's Pizza Rat. <laughs> Throw back to a meme that is long since dead. It's a great one, though. Uh, okay. I think it's time for Heart of Podness. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. And this is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at Steven Soderbergh's 2001 buddy, 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 heist movie, Ocean's Eleven. And boy, are we getting into a one-scene flirtation territory with this movie. It's at least four scenes. Yeah, but also it's those four scenes where one of our plot points doesn't have the female lead in it at all. Yeah, because there were not five points. Yeah, there's not five points. But that, of course, is why we're talking about casinos, because this is a movie all about casinos. If you haven't seen it, it's a classic heist movie where they try and rob a casino. They try and rob three casinos. Three casinos, one vault. But it also makes it seem like casinos are the most heavily guarded places in the world, and I'm really wondering if that's the case. I mean, I believe that casinos have so much cash on hand that they seem like such an obvious place to try to rob that they have a pretty intense security apparatus. Yeah, they're just making it seem like this is Fort Knox. This is, like, the highest level of security available. But they also establish that this is more intense than most casinos. They establish that nobody has ever successfully robbed a casino on the Strip, and these are the toughest ones to do. Because Terry Benedict is so paranoid and so ruthless. Yeah, and willing to murder people for money. Yeah, Andy Garcia is good in this movie. Yeah, he's great. He's He's always great. But he's so deliciously dastardly in this movie. And his fancy clothes, fancy in air quotes, are always also so awful. 
Yeah, he's magnificent. Yeah. This is like almost a Geostorm level performance from him. Oh my god. You just love to bring up that he's in Geostorm. I love bringing up. He's the president in Geostorm. I know. He's so good in Book Club, though. He is. He was great. Book Club. Fun movie. Yeah. And, you know, this movie is also a fun movie. It is. That's kind of the defining quality of this movie is everyone's there having a good time. Yeah, it's definitely there to be fun. Right. It is not saying anything else. Except... One thing it does kind of say, which we'll get into, is that women, like money in a casino, are property to be stolen in many ways. Yeah, that's definitely something that it kind of gets into, particularly towards the end. Yeah. Which I think is why in some of the sequels they make a real deliberate effort to give Julia Roberts more agency. Yeah, because this one, boy, is it one of our more problematic movies. Yeah, I love this movie. It's a ton of fun. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it in a while, watch it. But it's not going to rank super high for us. Oh, God, no. Yeah, so this movie actually comes at a really interesting place where the year before this movie came out, its director, Steven Soderbergh, had become the first person ever, still the only person, to be nominated for two Best Director Awards in the same year. That's insane. In 2000, he was nominated for Traffic and for Aaron Brockovich, and he won it for Traffic. That's ridiculous. So two out of five people nominated were Steven Soderbergh. That's right. And I don't know if that will ever be done again. It'd be tough. For starters, you have to put out two movies in a year, and they both have to be really good. Yeah, that is so much work. You've got to make them fast, and one of the things about Steven Soderbergh is he makes movies fast. Yeah. Also, Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, and Ocean's Eleven are all very different movies. Yeah. Which is also insane. genres really well. Yeah. But it's always nice when he comes back to the heist stuff, because he does it so brilliantly. I mean, he did Logan Lucky last year, which is a blast. It's just a ton of fun. Yeah, you've been telling me to watch that one for a while, and I've been meaning to, but... Highly recommend it. Adam Driver, Channing Tatum, Daniel Craig, all terrific in it. Yeah, all doing West Virginia accents, right? Mm -hmm. Are they any good? Yeah, they are pretty good. That's good. Because it always is very disconcerting when there's a British person doing a terrible Southern accent in a movie. It's a really nice portrayal of sort of the poor South and Appalachia in a way that we don't often get in movies. Or at least when we do get it, it's almost like misery porn. Right. Look at how rough it is. Whereas these are just people living the realities of their lives. But I think it's very true to that experience. But I think it's also reflective of one of Soderbergh's strengths, which is his strength with heist movies. That he does a really good job of laying out all the pieces so you understand what's happening, what needs to happen, and how it's going down. So that when something goes wrong, you understand the stakes, you understand exactly what its effect is. Right. And just like other great heist movies, there always has to be something that goes slightly wrong. Right. Of course. One of the best heist movies of all time being Star Wars. Of course. Of course. Star Wars is basically a heist movie. They have to get onto the Death Star. Well, they get pulled onto the Death Star. They have to turn off the tractor beam. They have to go through a couple little missions to get Leia and do that. Then they have to get off. And then it's almost another heist movie to blow it up. Right. They even actually, I noticed in this movie, when they're laying out the initial plan for breaking into the vault at the Bellagio, Mm -hmm. they've got this 3D animation of what it looked like and it looks a lot like the 3d animation planning the trench run in the original star wars does it really it's it's been a little while since i've seen it going down a little hallway you see the circle at the end also the size of a womp rat yeah also using explosives there are a lot of explosives in this movie there are a lot of explosives uh brought along by don Cheadle and his cockney accent with his cockney rhyming slang that always has to be explained (laughs) which is kind of funny it is his accent also sucks oh it's so bad Oh, my God. You know, Don Cheadle actually is not credited in this movie. Really? Yeah, because he wanted to be credited above the title with Clooney and Brad Pitt and Matt Damon, and he couldn't swing that, and so he said, fine, I don't want to be credited at all. That's the most, like, not even passive-aggressive, but petty. That's the word I'm looking for. That is the pettiest thing in the world. And I like Don Cheadle. Yeah. I mean, sounds like he might be... Not the greatest person to be around, but yeah, in terms also, of his acting. Like 20 years, maybe he's mellowed. Yeah, but he is a great actor, for yeah, sure. For sure. Uh, this movie is peppered with famous people. We just listed four of them. Yeah. And during its production, it was basically just this constant stream of, who's going to be in Ocean's Eleven? I don't know, another famous person? Yeah. Like, when they were first putting it together, there was some talk about Bruce Willis as Danny Ocean. Oh, I don't know if that would be That would have been a very different movie. Yeah, very different. That's also because that's late career Bruce Willis, as opposed to Clooney, post-Batman, a couple of years after ER. No, Clooney is definitely the right choice for oh, this for movie. Sure. He is great. And he was able to leverage himself to get a lot of other people on board. Right. Have you seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I have not. Oh, that is a great film. Clooney is so good in that one. That's what I've heard. Yeah. 
they talked about a lot of other people. Linus, the Matt Damon role. Right. They talked about Johnny Depp or Mark Wahlberg for it. I keep forgetting that this is 17 years ago, so mm-hmm. ages are very different in my oh, mind. Yeah. yeah, where it's like, oh, Johnny Depp, but he's too old. And then I'm like, wait, nope, this was 17 years ago. Yeah, this is a pre-Jack Sparrow Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah. So this is, what was his biggest thing before that? Was it I mean, he'd like, done Edward Scissorhands, he'd done yeah. Martin stuff. Yeah, and then 21 Jump Street was his biggest mm-hmm. breakout thing. Some of the other guys who were involved, originally Luke and Owen Wilson were going to play the twins. As the thing got delayed, they had a commitment to Royal Tenenbaums they couldn't yeah. get out of. That would be kind of fun. Yeah. I think I would enjoy that. They actually talked about the Coen brothers after that, playing the roles. Do they act? I, I have no idea. Have they actually been in any movies? Let me take a gander. They have no credited acting roles. Yeah. And nothing since 1990. Oh, so... That would have been an interesting choice then. Yeah, it would have been the kind of thing that you're doing almost for the stunt of these people are in it. Right. Which is kind of this entire cast, except that everyone does a really good job. Yeah, because they're all good actors. Right. Actually, one of the uh, people that we'll be talking about most in this movie, because of our focus, is Julia Roberts. Right. Who is just coming off a Best Actress win for Aaron Brockovich with Soderbergh. Fair. And... One of the stories from this that I love is that this is a period where actor salaries were really starting to, to go up. Yeah. And Julia Roberts had recently become the first person ever to get $20 million for being in a movie. And that was like a huge deal. It was covered in a ton of like the Hollywood trades. She was the first person. She was the first woman to be paid first $20 million dollars in, yeah. in a movie. And like the first men were within the previous decade. Okay. So then when Clooney and Soderbergh were trying to get her to be in this movie... They sent her a $20 bill in the mail with a note that said, I hear you get 20 now. Come Ooh. be in our movie. Oh, man. Did she really get 20 for this movie? Not, Not for this movie. Everybody okay. took pay cuts for yeah. to try to keep the price down. Right, because, boy, would that be an expensive movie. Yeah, and at one point, Warner's actually tried to get it even lower because Soderbergh wanted to shoot it in black and white, and Warner's told him he could only do it if he cut the budget even more because then it would be less of a financial risk for them. And he was like, uh, never mind. Yeah, because... Making it black and white is definitely a risky move. For sure, yeah. Audiences are not huge fans. Unless it is apparently the artist? Did anyone see the artist? I think I did, and not a fan, to be honest. I have not seen it. Yeah, don't watch it. Not worth it. So this movie, they wound up making it in total for $85 million. So if they had paid Julia Roberts her standard asking price, that would have been a quarter of the budget, roughly. Oh my god. In a movie that also had George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon... Yeah. All these guys. Why did they do this movie? They must not have made that much money. Actually, it did really well. It opened on December 7th, 2001 to $38 million. So that's half its budget opening weekend. Yeah. And that's it. $38 million alone is good money. I guess it's like very much a star vehicle. Yeah. But if you take a heist movie on its own, that's not necessarily an obvious success. No. I just mean... I mean the... Actors aren't getting money from that. Oh, the actors themselves. Yeah. It must have been like a fast process, like you were saying. I don't know. It's hard to justify in my mind why you would do this movie. Because it's fun. It is. This movie exists to be fun. Yeah. Even for the people involved, I guess. Yeah. It went on to make $183 million with a worldwide total of $450 million. Oh, my God. That is a lot from abroad. Yeah. Yeah. And it did really well overseas. Because I think that's a tribute to Soderbergh's very clear directing, where even if you're seeing it in subtitles, even if you're seeing it dubbed, it still works because it's so clearly laid out how each piece of this fits together. Yeah, definitely not the most, like, dialogue-intense films, where the dialogue's really easy to follow. It's not bad dialogue. And it's also really visually clear while yeah. also being visually fun. Like, right. This movie is really well edited. It's got some fun transitions that, like, George Lucas is famous for his screen wipes. Yeah. This movie used some screen wipes, but also always in ways that reflected motion happening on the screen. Right. So it felt really fun and dynamic. Yeah, a lot of, like, zoom in on something, zoom out, and it's the same thing, but in a different place. Yeah. Moves like that. You know, little things that are really fun to watch. Yeah, and definitely work in a film like this. Speaking of Star Wars, I actually thought of this movie a lot when I went to see Solo. Okay. Because that's a movie that's basically just a string of heists. Yeah. And some of them work really well, and there's one towards the end when they're doing the actual mission on Kessel. And it didn't work for me as much, in part because they had not laid out what are the steps here, how does this need to work, when something goes wrong, why does it matter? Right. You need to know how it's going to go right to appreciate when it goes wrong. That's a very important step. And if you don't have that, you're much less invested. And the brilliance of this movie is that they use the model of the Bellagio Vault to walk us through the mission before they even have to do it. And then that model later on becomes a big plot point. That's part of a fun reveal. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, should we start talking about the romance, though? Uh, yeah, let's do it. There's one other thing that I want to mention. In okay. Office, which is that they were actually able to shoot almost all the movie where they needed it in the actual Bellagio. Wait, really? Yeah, on the floor of the casino, in the high roller area, in the valet parking. That's insane. Because Jerry Weintraub, one of their producer, was friends with the owner of the Bellagio. Classic. And so they made a deal where like even the high rollers like, had to park in the parking garage because they shut down the valet parking to use it to make the movie. Oh, boy. And at points, like they got to clear out the floor and shoot on the floor of the casino. And there were parts where they got to turn off some of the fountains to get clearer shots because they were just able to make these connections. That's really awesome. Yeah, so what we're watching here is actually set in yeah. the show. I'm guessing it's not actually what their vault looks like because otherwise they're showing people how to break in. It is actual security footage. It is. They got access to their security cameras to use those. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I don't think the vault probably is that intense. No, I'm sure they didn't lay out exactly how to break into the vault. Unless, what if they did? I read a really funny story about the original Ocean's Eleven in 1960, the Red yeah. movie. And in that one, what they do is they rewire the electricity so that when the power goes out, instead of turning on emergency lights, it opens the doors to the vaults. And, That's pretty cool. And then what they did was instead of getting a guy working as one of the dealers, they got a guy working as one of the sanitation workers. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was they also turned out the power. Right. And then they took as much money as they could and just shoved it in trash cans. And then when the lights came back on, they just walked out of the casino, and yeah. the trash cans got dumped into the trash truck that their guy was driving. That's pretty cool. And so when Frank Sinatra was pitched on that movie, he was like, forget the movie, we should just pull this job. <laughs> he didn't need that much money. But it would be fun. It would be fun. And that's what this movie's all about. Yeah. They should make like a escape room type situation where you just get to rob something. I'd be into that. Like do a heist. I don't know. It could be very small scale where you got to like have some time to plan out your mode of attack and then have to break in. So they set up like a vault or something and you have to come up with a plan? To break in, yeah. Except that... you'd probably have to destroy things, which would be not good. Yeah. Hmm. There's some an idea there, though. There is. I feel like we could work on it. Yeah. No one steal this idea. Verbal copyright. If you get an idea for us, you can tweet it at us. Hashtag. Oh, Will struggling. This is oh, the no. most he struggles with the hashtag. You got this, buddy. Uh, heart of hashtag heart of heist heist of podness heist of podness there we go ah i did it hashtag heist of podness if there's any information you will need to understand it tweeted us hashtag bfacts the number one fact related hashtag i really want people to just start tweeting at us like fun facts about anything besides bees with hashtag bfacts everything is a bfact because we're all connected mark if you say so (laughs) i don't know if that one trucks but it works trucks tracks it can do both. If the truck is full of trash bags full of money. Or bees. <laughs> Same thing. All connected. <laughs> Hashtag facts. Bees? Bees? Okay, we should get started. <laughs> okay, Will, take us to point number one. Okay, so basically, if you haven't picked it up already, this movie is about a heist. And it stars George Clooney as Danny Ocean. And we are only going to kind of talk about the heist because... This is Heart of Podness. We're just here to talk about the romance in five points. So, If you say so. <laughs> at the beginning of this movie, Danny Ocean, played by Clooney, is getting out of jail. He's before his parole board. He's bearded. That's how we know that he's not in great shape. Bad beard number one. Bad beard number one. Ding. <laughs> and his parole board asks if he was released, if he would commit another crime. And he says he committed the first crime because his wife had left him and he was upset. And his response to that question is, well, my wife already left me. She can't do it again. Oh, foreshadowing? Ooh. Does that happen in the next one? I don't think so. Does she stay with him? I haven't seen these movies in ages. Yeah, I don't know if I ever feel the need to watch Ocean's 12 again, to I be honest. I will. I enjoyed this enough, and I remember liking Ocean's 12 fine. Then I'll probably yeah. go back to it. I don't remember it. But you know what I will watch? The reason that we are releasing this episode on the day we are, opening this week, Ocean's 8. On June 8th. On June 8th. It's going to be so fun. Very excited. I love the idea that Sandra Bullock and George Clooney are siblings, too. Yeah. Have they been in a movie together? I mean, they must have, right? At some point. Oh, duh. Gravity. gravity yeah. Oh, man. They were the only two characters. Yeah, that's not our best moment, I Will. feel foolish. Okay. I feel silly. Okay. Well, there we go. Anyway, so Danny gets out of prison, and he's picked up by his friend Rusty. Always a great name. I'm here for anybody named Rusty. Badbeard number two. Badbeard number two is Brad Pitt. Yeah. Brad Pitt in a good chunk of this movie, is dressed like a high schooler at a dance, where his jacket, the collar is, like, a little bit too high, 
and his shirts and his ties are like the same color like you bought it in one of those boxes at pennies right and everything is just too big which is more of a statement on the fashion at the time yes which is not great I was going back to recently, it the caps are in the stanley cup final and i was realizing when i bought a hockey jersey i was like oh this is why i became a big hockey fan in middle school it's because at the time my fashion aesthetic was clothes that are too big and yeah, all hockey jerseys are too big. That's fair. I do have to ask, Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. does he have frosted tips or is that his natural hair? I think he has frosted tips. I think he has frosted tips. It's 2001, man. In the most 2001 move of this entire movie. Brad Pitt has frosted tips. And an ugly goatee. Oh, yeah. And at some point wears sunglasses that are too faint to actually do anything besides slightly tinge the world a different color. <laughs> it's, an, it's a choice. <laughs> it's a choice. Don't try and pull it off, kids. Anyway, so Rusty picks up Danny at prison and... No, he doesn't. Doesn't? No, that's the end. Is it both times? No. Doesn't he have to go meet Rusty in Atlantic City? Because that's where you see Topher Grace playing Topher Grace. Right. So Danny gets out of prison and he heads to Atlantic City where he meets Rusty working in a casino well no it's like a strip club it's a it's more a of a burlesque. peep show where like all the action is happening in like glass in booths yeah behind glass so it's more of a peep show and in that place rusty is running poker lessons for a bunch of young stars of 2001 like actual young stars from the period are they all famous because the only one i recognize is Topher grace yeah, they're all from tv shows at the time let me pull up who all is in that scene okay i just looked at my notes and i have a note that just says bp's goatee is not good it's, it's quite bad so in this scene where brad pitt is teaching poker he's teaching it to holly marie combs from charmed Topher grace at the time of that 70s show joshua jackson from dawson's creek Barry Watson from Seventh Heaven, and Shane West of Once and Again. Wow. And so the idea is, and they make a reference to it in the movie, that he's teaching poker to celebrities. Right. They're all referred to by their actual names. Yeah, they're all playing themselves. Right. Apparently later on, Taco Bell made commercials spoofing that, where it was like the poker lessons, and wanted it to be so accurate that they tracked down and bought the same poker table. Okay, Taco Bell. That's a Taco Bell move. Yeah. But so Danny meets up with him there, joins in on the poker game, Rusty is pretty reluctant at first, but is convinced to get along when Danny tells him about the new job he wants to pull, that he wants to knock over all three of Terry Benedict's casinos in Vegas. Yeah, and they're all three real ones, because in this world, he owns the Bellagio, the MGM Grand, and a third one that I can't remember. And they're all on like the- Like Brad Pitt, we're a little rusty here. Yeah. Boo. And they're all on the same block, so they're- like little rusty. <laughs> so That's they're- L-I-L apostrophe rusty. Actually, no, don't do the apostrophe, because that'll break up the hashtag. Good catch. So- they're all on the same block, so they're connected the third by... The one is t- the Mirage. The Mirage, okay. They're connected by tunnels with one vault in the middle. Kind of like the Smithsonian, how they're all connected with tunnels underneath, only these ones have money in the middle instead of, I don't know, old paintings of George Washington. And dead bodies. Ooh. I wonder how many dead, dead bodies... bodies in the casinos or the Smithsonian? <laughs> Actually, both. That's where they're connected. Are you saying the casinos are connected to the Smithsonian? Yeah. <laughs> they run all the way from Las Vegas to Washington, D.C. The underground tunnels beneath all of the United States. Yeah. The mole people. Um, by the way, I'm verbal trademark on that idea. That's going to be our next screenplay. Okay. Will they have been dug by the underminer? Uh, no, because that's copyrighted. No, it's going to... That's where the Soul Train docks. We are moving on. So, next scene in Soul Train. <laughs> nope. So, Brad Pitt... Convinced to actually join the team, they go talk to Saul. No, not Saul. This is the other one. A uh, rich guy who they go talk to Ruben, played by Ruben. Yeah, so who's awesome in this movie. I love him. Yeah, he's got this like Hawaiian shirt that's open all the time, so you can see his hairy chest and his chains. Yeah, because he used to own another casino that was bought by Terry Benedict, so he is super rich. And that casino is being destroyed, so he's also really angry at Terry Benedict. Yeah, so he's the money bags. Like he's the one funding this. Right, Clooney is the ideas man. Pitt is the actual planner, like, like the COO. Yeah, he makes it actually happen. And Ruben is the guy who bankrolls it. Right. And he has to be really convinced to bankroll it because he explains, like, Terry Benedict is ruthless. He's not like the old school casino guys. There are bodies in his past that he had to destroy. Yeah. Lives he had to destroy. People he probably had to kill, it's implied, yeah. to get to where he is. So right. don't mess with Terry Benedict. You'd be better off doing anything else. And that's where he also walks through the fact that no one has ever robbed the strip. Yeah, and that's where you get the three scenes of people literally just running around holding money. Which are very funny. They're great. Soderbergh is in the crew in one of them. Is he really? Yeah, in the 80s. That's cool. Ruben then is like, oh, you need a team. And you get the classic team building montage. It's a great montage. It's good. So it just cuts between all the people who join the team, ending with Matt Damon, 
who is definitely more attractive as he gets older, I would say. It's cute little Matt Damon, though. Yeah. It's a couple years after Good Will Hunting. But it's interesting, because he's someone that definitely has aged well. Yeah, for sure. But I'm also, I'm reminded again in this movie that I firmly believe Matt Damon is better as a character actor in a supporting role. Except for, like, The Martian. All of the Matt Damon performances I enjoy are the ones where he's in doing a bit of the movie, but isn't the focus of it. Like um, Interstellar. He does an awesome job in Interstellar. So you're saying you're not a fan of The Happening, the classic M. Night Shyamalan film? I have not seen The Happening. You should watch it. It's really bad. Matt Damon is married to Zoe Deschanel. But I think of a movie, which I know I've mentioned before when we talked about Sideways, I think of a movie like Downsizing, where I think Matt Damon, his appearance creates a sense where he can kind of drown in genericness. But, in fact, he can be a lot of fun. And so I see him not only in other Soderbergh things, like he does a really good job as a police detective in Unsane, but also even doing something like Interstellar, where he has a more sinister role, or just having fun like he does in Thor Ragnarok. I think Damon is better when he gets to goof off but doesn't have the weight of the whole movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. Whereas Clooney has a lot of fun being at the center of things and playing off everybody. And I think that's what makes him a great leading man. Yeah. Also, as I said before, not a lot of romance in this movie. We're on point number one. We haven't even mentioned who the lead female is. So anyway, lead put, in quotes. We put together our team. We've got a murderer's row of the famous actors of 2001. Yeah. And they start putting together the whole mission, how they're going to knock over these three casinos. And in the midst of all of it, Rusty, Brad Pitt, assigns Matt Damon, who plays Linus, to follow terry benedict around and to get the lowdown on terry benedict's daily schedule so right when they're doing the heist they don't only have their plan they also know where the guy in charge is at all times right which is very important right because you've got to be prepared for how other people will respond yeah and that brings us to point number two right yes it does so linus is then leading rusty through it because rusty is kind of he leads the he doesn't plan it but he definitely takes a lead on the operation Right, especially as Clooney kind of shifts his own focus. Right, which we'll get into. But Rusty and Danny are very good friends, clearly have a long history, very cute. Whereas Linus is the new guy. They were originally looking for somebody else. They couldn't get him, but they knew Linus's dad from back in the day. Right, so Linus is following, so he doesn't know, and he points out that at this time, Terry goes and talks to this woman who is the curator of the art museum part of this hotel slash casino, and dun-dun-dun, Rusty recognized her as Tess Ocean, played Danny's by Julia ex-wife. Roberts, Danny's ex-wife. And so then Rusty goes to confront Danny about this. He says, like, he wants to know, did you know about this? You need to tell me this mission isn't personal. Right, because earlier at the poker table scene, Topher Grace says the first rule of poker is leave your emotions at the door. Right, the first rule of poker taught to him by Rusty. Right, so this goes clearly against that thing if it's driven entirely by revenge and danny's response is it's not entirely about that yeah which means it is a little bit for sure (laughs) a lot of it yeah so rusty's kind of annoyed he points out now we now we've got two things now we've got two targets in this heist yeah danny is trying to target tess to get her back and they're targeting the vault and he asked him if we have to pick which one is it going to be because tess doesn't split 11 ways yeah Which also, like, again, we're getting to the point where Tess is considered to be a prize in this heist. So I I think in that moment, I don't think it's Rusty. Not Rusty. I think his point is like, hey, wait a minute. You got us all in here under this premise. Yeah. The idea that we're going to make a bunch of money. You need to stick to that because we did not all sign on just to, like, try and get you back together with your wife. Right. Some of us care about you, but that's not what we're here for. Basically, Rusty cares about him. The other ones don't know him that well. Uh, Ramon Frank does. Yeah. I'd be on board. a fun performance by Bernie Mac. Oh, for sure. Uh, I'd be really on board if Rusty and Danny got together at the end of this movie. Not gonna lie. There is definitely a queer reading of this movie that I'm into. Their chemistry is so much stronger than any other people in this movie. Yeah. Great banter. Have yeah. they worked together before, or is this the first time? I think this is the first time. They're really good together. They're great together. They play off each other well. They are hot take. Very good actors. Oh, what? George Clooney and Brad Pitt? That don't impress me much. So that is our second point. We still have not seen Tess and Danny in the same room. Nope. But here we will in point number three. 
when Danny goes to a restaurant, well, actually what's happening is they're setting up the first part of their plan. Yeah. Where Saul Bloom, played by Carl Reiner, pretends to be this wealthy businessman who's going to be keeping stuff in the vault. In the Wealthy, well, shady businessman. He's like an arms dealer. He could be wealthy so, and shady. Yeah. But that's kind of the point is that he's like very much kind of like, oh, you got to keep this under the wraps. Like, a history of shadiness. And so he is willing to wink along with yeah. Saul. By the way, there's a great bit where Saul is just like this old retiree when they meet him. He's at Dirty Lanes, which is the horse racing track. Excuse me, the dog racing track in St. Petersburg. Yeah. Um, and then when they get him to the casino, he's pretending to be this, like, vaguely, like, I don't know, Jew, like, Israeli? That's how I read it. I don't. Or, like, generic, like, mysterious Eastern European. Gene- I read it more as a generic, like, 2001 Cold War is over, but still, like, Eastern Europeans are a little shady. Yeah, which, like. You know, it's an age of kleptocracy in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so it's clearly, I think he's supposed to, I think they even say he's supposed to be an arms dealer. Okay. And he asks Benedict if he can store something in the vault. As opposed to in the safe where most guests would keep something that they were worried about. Yeah, that is, you know, very like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, don't ask questions, but I need the safe. Right. And so while he's talking to Benedict, Danny goes to the restaurant in the hotel where he comes across Tess. Yes. So Tess, who is waiting for Terry, who's running late, Danny walks up and gives her a caress, creepy, and she says, oh, 30 seconds late, I was starting to worry, which also shows how punctual Terry is, always. It's useful because it makes him predictable. Yeah. He follows a very tight schedule. But she is not happy to see him. No, she's not. Yeah. She's clearly mad at him. She tells him that she sold her wedding ring because he points out she's not wearing it. Right. Which they're fully it's, divorced. It's been so, four years. No, I think he said he didn't get the papers until the last day he was in jail. Right. But he was in jail for four years. Right. He was in jail for four years. So clearly justified for her to get rid of her wedding ring. Yeah. And so they're bickering for a while. And Tess has this magnificent line that I loved when she's been calling him a liar and a thief. He argues that he's just a thief, not a liar. Right. That's the kind of banter we're dealing with. It's fun. But the best line that she has there is when he's saying stuff like that and smiling along, still having a good time. Her response is, you know what your problem is? You've met too many people like you. That is a good line because... It's so good. It, I think that's the problem with most of us in life. That's true. It's also the premise of this movie in a way a bunch of people who are like each other having fun together yeah the line i liked was when he i think it's when he asks if she still has the wedding ring she says didn't you get my papers and he says the day i got out and her response is i told you i'd write which i appreciated yeah she's cutting she is she is very unhappy tess doesn't get a lot of screen time but she does make her presence felt whenever she's there i mean it's julia Roberts, so that's not surprising it's the story of this movie yeah And one of the really big indicators of how this relationship has gone in the past and where it stands now is that as Danny is pushing her and kind of interrogating her about Terry Benedict, he asks, does he make you laugh? And her response is, it doesn't make me cry. Yeah, she has been hurt. It's very clear. And we never really find out exactly what went down, but it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. And I never felt the need to. No. Which is I don't a need good, Ocean's 10. Unless it's the third sequel to Ocean's 8. <laughs> yes, fair. But yeah, that's the one where Sandra Bullock and George Clooney pull a heist together in space. Verbal copyright. Mark Schaefer, 2018. Part of Podgis Films has quite a slate development. Yeah. And they all tie into the Soul Train cinematic universe. No, they don't. STCU. By the way, then... Uh, Terry shows up. Well, before that, Danny is trying to convince her. He's like, look... You know, I know we're divorced. Date whoever you want, but don't date Terry. He's a bad guy. Yeah, he does not. He does not like Terry. For separate reasons, I think we're supposed to believe. Yeah, I think it's both. Yeah. Kind of like the mission has two goals. That Danny does care about both of them. I think he also has multiple reasons for disliking Terry. I think part of it is the fact that Ruben's casino was taken from him and destroyed. I think Danny feels a connection to Ruben. Yeah. An investment in that. And I think also he doesn't like what a scumbag Terry is. Right. Danny and Rusty represent a glamorized old school vision of the heist guy, of the like honorable criminal. Yeah. Who goes in, has fun, doesn't actually hurt anybody. Right. Whereas Terry represents a newer, more ruthless method of leaving bodies in the wake and not really caring about who gets hurt in the process. Yeah. Also, this is the scene where I realized Terry is not an intimidating name. I find it very interesting that they chose Terry. But Benedict is. Benedict, yeah. I feel like his name should have been Benedict something cool. Benedict Terrier. Benedict Terrier. Benedict Terrence. Or, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) 
What an interesting name I just came up with. No, I think we're going to make a Benedict Terrier movie. <laughs> He'll be the villain in part 10 in yeah. space. Benedict Terrier is the captain of the Soul Train. Okay, we're moving on. So Terry shows up at dinner because, you know, that's where it's he's supposed dinner. to be. And is also unamused to see Danny Ocean there. He sits down, he takes the seat from Danny. And for the rest of the conversation, he's just like rubbing Tess's hands. Yeah, it's making like direct eye contact with her the whole time he's talking to Ocean. Yeah, it's very unsettling. Yeah, it's creepy. He's really creepy with Tess. He's creepy with everybody. Yeah. He's a creepy dude. Andy he Garcia, is. great job. Yeah, for sure. But the whole scene does not end well, and Terry has him red flagged. Right. If Danny goes into the casino ever, people will tail him and track him and watch everything he does. Right. And eventually, as we see later, bring him to a bathroom and have him beaten up. For no reason other than basically talking to his ex-wife. Later on in the movie... I mean, basically, just move on to point four, right? Yeah. So the heist is happening. Yes, there is a heist. It's the central chunk of the movie. It's very cool. It's very fun. We're not going to talk about it. Yeah. If you really care, you can always watch the movie. Watch the movie. It's so fun. Yeah. So during the heist, at the beginning, right? Yeah, Danny goes to see her right as it's about to start. Danny, who has been removed from the heist. Right. They took him out in theory. he was too emotional. Right. You're too connected to this. So he goes to see Tess. And he's followed there. Yeah. While he's there, she's saying, like, look, you're not going to win me back. Like, get over it. Right. And he says that he just came to say goodbye. He kisses her on the cheek and says, you be good. Which I hated. It's so condescending. It is. It's so, ugh. But it's also hard to read his motive in that moment. Yeah. I don't really know what his goal is. I know he knows big stuff is about to go down and he wants to see her before it does. I don't really know what his objective is there, though. I mean, I think it's to say goodbye because he doesn't expect to see her again in a way. Yeah. And also, it gets him brought to the room. Which is part of the plan. Which is part of the plan. So he gets hauled in by the casino's enforcers. He gets brought into a room to be beaten up in. Yeah. But he's already gotten to the main enforcer who agrees to make it sound like he's beating him up while Clooney goes off through the ceiling to help with the heist. Right. So... Danny rejoins the heist, and cut to the end, essentially. mid-heist, Clooney looks much better in his heist clothes, his blacks, yeah. than he does in any of the other clothes he wears in the movie. Yeah, and the only person who looks good is Matt Damon, because he's supposed to be dressed like a nerd, and is wearing, like, and looks great. nerdy 2001 yeah, glasses, and, like, and the... it's so, like, 2018 cool. His suit doesn't have patches, but it looks like it should. Yeah, and it fits well, which is interesting. Like, it's a much tighter fit. There's physical performance parts of it, too. He looks down all the time. Yeah. Oh, I just remembered why Danny did that. He plants the phone in her pocket. Oh, you're right. That's what he does. He plants a phone in her pocket. Because then, at the end of the heist, a phone starts going off, and Tess is with Terry, and Terry's like, are you going to answer that? And she goes, I don't have a cell phone. Ah, 2001. 2001. When people could say that believably. Right. And she answers it, and at the other end of the line is Rusty, who asks for Terry. And Terry says, who is this? And Rusty says, I'm the guy who's robbing you. Yeah, so that's part of it. And then later she goes to her room because she is sent there by her man so he can he deal to, with it. He wants to get her away so that he can go and beat up Danny. And murder people, clearly. Yeah. He doesn't even imply it. He's like, I will kill you. So she goes back and she looks stressed because she doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't even know the robbery is happening. She's just freaked out. But clearly some crap is going down. Yeah, clearly something is going down. But... What's important for us... By this point, the power has gone out in the casino, Yeah, which is part of the heist, so there's chaos going on, because when the lights come back on in the casino, all the rich people are like trying to steal chips, and... It's really funny, but... It's funny, because I think in that circumstance, I'm like, oh, well, you would just sit there and wait for the lights to come on, right? I think that's what I would do. I probably would do... I think most people would actually do that. I don't think there would be that much chaos. There are a lot of people who would take chips. I think there are people that would, like, try and very calmly, like, reach out and grab them. But I don't think there would be, like, jumping over the table, women getting punched in the face, which was a terrible look. No. So that's all happening. But importantly for us... Tess then gets a phone call in the room on the landline telling her to turn to channel 88, which she does. And the security camera footage has been patched into her room because one of the first things they did for the mission was gain access to the security cameras. Yeah, as in all heist movies. Right. So, but what's on the TV? But uh, Danny Ocean getting confronted by Terry Benedict, 
who says like, are you the one stealing my money? And he's like, I've been getting beaten up by your guy the whole time. How could I have done it? But then Danny offers to like use his connections in the underworld to get the money back in exchange for Terry leaving Tess. And Terry's like, do it, do it. Which Tess is now watching, exposing how ruthless the guy she's dating is. Right. So clearly she's upset. So she leaves and as she's storms out, out yeah. she passes him and refuses to talk to him. Yeah. She storms out and then the heist continues. They get the money. They all escape except and Danny. In the end, Danny is caught going out and he is not actually caught enough being connected to the heist, but he's in violation of his parole. Yeah. He's out of state. He's not supposed to be. Right. Which he's been out of state from the day he got out of prison. Don't you have to check in in person with your parole officer? We see him checking on the phone. Yeah. I just find that really interesting. Yeah. Whatever state he's supposed to be in is pretty lenient. It's New Jersey in 2001. Yeah. As long as then U.S. Attorney Chris Christie doesn't go looking for him, he'll be okay. (laughs) But Terry, to get his, like, minor revenge turns him in for violating his parole and he gets three to six months right and so in our fifth and final point danny is being put away and tess runs after him towards the car and as she's running shouts wait that's my husband which no he ain't and also she has no reason to like actually fall back for him right that's what this movie is missing is i totally get her being like wait a minute terry benedict is awful yeah but there are other options besides just then going back with danny yeah where danny is also basically saying i want to buy tess off of you i didn't read it quite that way i think that's maybe not what he's intending but in a way because she goes back to him it almost feels that way yeah i think his point in that is that like if he knows that she's watching on tv which i assume he does yeah that i think his point is to illustrate to her again what he said earlier like this is a bad guy right so she runs after him. She asks him what the deal is. He's like, oh, I'll probably be put away for like three to six months for parole violation. Title card, three to six months later. Love it. Great joke. A little Soderbergh snark right there. Yeah. And Danny gets out of prison. He's wearing the same tuxedo from the night he's arrested. Rusty is there to pick him up. Yeah. And the movie ends with two really unfortunate lines. Yeah. Rusty says to Danny, I stopped and picked up your personal effects. And then Danny looks in the car and says, I'm not sure these belong to me. And it's Julia Roberts saying that in this instance, actually saying women are property. And Rusty more so than Danny. Yeah. And it's like, again, the kind of thing where like, I get the joke they're going for. I wish they hadn't done it. Also, there's a lot of that in this movie. The main one I'm thinking of is the scene in the chaos where a woman gets punched in the face, which just comes out of nowhere and is played as a joke and is very just weird. Right. It's like, we didn't need it. It didn't really do much for the story. It's one thing if, like, something happens to a woman and it serves their character and advances the story. Yeah. Like, for example, if at some point in the 1670s, the vampire known as Dracula found himself starved and he couldn't find any food, so he bit into a cow. And then that cow died because all of its blood was drained. And so the farmer who owned the cow buried it. And then three days later, the cow rose again as a vampire cow known as the hell cow. And it had to fight Howard the Duck. I, okay, <laughs> how does that tie into who again punched in the face, Will? I appreciate your effort, but really that didn't tie in at all. So that's an example of a female character, because by the way, the hell cow is female. Its name is Bessie. The hell cow is a female to whom something very horrible happened. Its blood was drained by a vampire. Yeah, okay. But that became the inciting incident for a journey of villainy, I suppose. But an interesting one, where it could adopt nicknames like the bovine, the blood beast, the cowled cow, because it wears a cape, and uh, the farm killer. Okay. Bessie the hell cow. Bessie the hell cow. He's got red eyes. Uh, Hold on, I have to look her up. Oh my god, that's kind of amazing. I'm really on board for this, not gonna lie. This is great. Um, But yes, unfortunately, this was your... (laughs) Sorry, I just found a really funny one where it's just a normal looking cow but has the cape on and a guy saying, well, I'll be. Oh, please send that to me. Hold on, one second. But yes, this has been your most recent, most forced, and most unfortunate incident of Duck Talk. I have no regrets. Wow, that picture's amazing. I'm going to put that on social media. <laughs> I really like it. That's the thing, though, is just in this movie where, like, the women are so one female character story. and women are so ancillary. I'm not saying that, like, it should never be put in film, but it's just a pattern of treating women as either property or punchlines. 
and ancillary to the plot. Which is weird, because I don't think that's re- reflective of Steven Soderbergh as a filmmaker. No. This is a year after Aaron Brockovich. I think it's just playing into the genre it's of the film. It's a masculine movie. Without doing any attempt to subvert the more unfortunate history of the genre, which is needed in yeah. many ways. And I, like we said, Julia Roberts does play a much larger role in the sequels. Yeah. And is central to a lot of those heists. Right. And also probably makes it worth the money that you pay to get Julia Roberts. Because right. it's really not in this movie. Yeah. So, what do you think? No. Is the relationship <laughs> believable? No. No, it's not. <laughs> they give no justification for why she goes back to him. We get justification for her leaving Terry. Yeah. We're missing the other piece. Yeah. Completely. Here's the thing. It's not a piece that belongs in the movie. The movie just shouldn't end with them together. No. It, it should honestly maybe just end with the other ten guys walking away from the fountain. Yeah. Danny's in jail. That's fine. He'll be, he won't be there long. And the other guys walk away and leave. Yeah, I really think it didn't need the tale, like the little coda. It's latter-day Spielberg issue, where Spielberg movies these days always go on one scene too long. Yeah. So, relationship, not believable. Danny and Rusty, on the other hand. Oh, boy. I'd buy it. A hundred percent. 2001 masculine environment they can't really like openly come out they have to maintain this charade i would love that movie and the whole time i think danny and rusty are having sex oh for sure so that one believable yeah danny and tess nah where would you rank danny and tess on 10 points um it's real low it's real low three I think it's, it might be lower than that. Three is while you were sleeping. This is less believable than while you were sleeping. Yeah. While you were sleeping, they have chemistry. They get along well. Yeah, two. This is a two. I was thinking it's a one. Really? There's nothing to support it except the fact that they were once married. Uh, yeah. See, to me, that actually, like, because they have a history, like, you know, clearly there was love at some point. Right. And it's a relationship that was broken up not based on, like hatred or something yeah we don't really know why it has to do something with danny's history as a criminal yeah that's what she's more mad about is the theft right so i can do it too maybe a two okay do we have anything at a one i mean no i don't think so yeah i mean it's definitely low bar is howard yeah i feel like it is at least two notches above howard and if you're keeping that at a zero i feel like if we reconsidered howard i might rate it higher are you serious i think so Oh my god, no. Look, man, we watched the B-movie. Yeah. I think B-movie almost makes more sense than Howard, because at least the B isn't, like, verbally abusive. Well, it's delusion in the B-movie. There is no romance. That's the that's B-movie, true, too, which makes it... should have an N.A. Yeah. We really probably should not have rated that one. We shouldn't have watched it. <laughs> I have no regrets about making you watch this movie. Some of my students got mad at me this week for saying that the B-movie was bad, and I was like, what are you guys doing? Did they like it? Yeah, because they grew up with it. That's so weird. They don't have a critical eye towards it. Okay. Children. Do you think they'd stay together? No. Yeah, no. Sequels be damned. I don't remember what they do in the sequels. I assume they stay together. I think they do, because she's, like, a part of the heist. Yeah, I think it's nonsense. Do they cut one of the people to make her the 11th? No, because the next one is 12. She's the 12th. Oh, she's the 12th. Who's the 13th? I can't remember. The 13th is the Holy Spirit? Probably. Okay, well, if you had to pick one person to date, whomst would it be? Probably either Rusty or Linus. Okay. Both of whom I like a lot. Rusty, again, is Brad Pitt. Linus is Matt Damon. They're both really fun guys in this movie. Yeah. I'm leaning more towards Rusty because I get a gay vibe off of him. (laughs) Fair. So I'm into that. Also, it is Brad Pitt. And I think he is actually the most fun. Yeah. I also know you are really into Frosted Tips and we should acknowledge that. Yeah. You know me. Just so into those Frosted Tips. 2001 fashion. My fave. Cut all of it. All right. Well, this has been kind of a quick episode, but this movie is not a romance. Yeah. So I think that's about it. Yeah. Next yeah. week, we're going to be doing a movie that Mark has been wanting me to watch for a while. Next week, we're covering a movie that probably is not great. And I don't know if Will will like it, but I have a lot of fun. Adam's Family Values. Well, it's directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who's a very fun guy. Yeah. And it's Angelica Houston as Morticia Adams and Joan Cusack as a Black Widow character. How could you go wrong? I've never seen any Adam's Family stuff. Ever? No. There was a bowling alley near my parents' house when I was growing up that had an Adam's Family pinball machine. Yeah. And that is mostly where my knowledge you haven't even comes from. You haven't even seen Scooby-Doo meets the Adam's Family? I've not seen that much Scooby-Doo. Ugh. Okay. Well, we should do the Scooby-Doo movie at some point, the live-action one. Movie. It is trash. <laughs> it's so bad. But yeah, so we're going to do that. So Will and I will be covering that one. And we're covering that one and not adam's family because it has joan cusack and adam's family values there we go in the meantime please make sure to rate review and subscribe and then talk to us on the internets 
at Facebook and Twitters. Yeah. yeah. Rating, reviewing, subscribing, it really helps other people to find the show because it makes us go up in the search results on iTunes. And also, of course, in the meantime, keep sending us those hashtag podcast summer stories on Twitter about how you introduced other people to the show. I heard one last week from listener Rachel R., who got her roommate to listen to it. So that's really exciting. Welcome, Rachel's roommate. And uh, tweet at us, too. Tell us what you think of the show. Yeah, let us know. And always, as always, I should say, please email us any questions or movie suggestions at heartofpodness at gmail.com. Keep those suggestions rolling so we can choose them. All right, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Um, I really don't know if this question is even applicable in this movie in the least. Frost those tips. <laughs> Frost those tips. That's about it. If you had taken that, I was going to say just slip cell phones in people's pockets and call them. Don't do that. That's really creepy. Frost those tips. Frost those. Hashtag frost those, frost those tips. <laughs> Okay, until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Hey, just wanted to drop this in here again because welcome back <laughs> we missed you so much i forgot to mention something when we were recording the episode and it's too great to wait until next week will came running to me after we stopped recording yelling mark and dragged me back in front of the microphone so we've talked a bunch of times about plays that are based on the movies that we've covered how many we talked about it for bridget jones yeah we talked about it for when harry met sally okay we talked about it with greece a little bit yeah we talked about it probably some other times yeah a lot of plays based on movies do you think there's a splash musical coming probably someday i would see the crap out of it verbal copyright again man we are just racking in the ideas all right mark i'm about to send you a link to something there were once youtube videos of it but they have all been pulled so if you classic if you can find a video of this send it to me as soon as possible anybody on the internet send it to us please okay hashtag heist of podness mark i'm sending it to you now look at this for those of you who cannot see this right now i will post this on social media this is a link to the takarazuka review in japan and they're all female musical adaptation of Ocean's Eleven. We have to fly to Japan and watch this immediately. Unfortunately, this was in 2011, so it is no longer being produced. This picture, again, I'm going to post it on social media, is of just these fabulous Japanese women all wearing suits, doing like an Ocean's Eleven pose. It's so perfect. Everything about it is just great. And it's a musical. Oh my god. Well, you know what this means. We have to invent time travel to go back to 2011, fly to Tokyo, and watch this show. I read a bunch of reviews of it. Steven Soderbergh went to Japan to see it. That's amazing. I cannot find video. So if you can find it, send it to us. Hashtag heist of podness. Yeah, it's official because they have Ocean's Eleven mentioned on the page. Yeah, they got the rights. Yeah, that's insane. I love it. I love everything about it. Anyway, thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for Adam's Family Values. In the meantime, hashtag we love the love, hashtag it's the sound, it's the feeling. Goodbye. Bye.